This message first aired on the radio on November 26, 2003. We uh, are beginning to head into deep waters of Scripture. We're beginning to head into what I would call uh, some of the deeper truths, some of the more elaborate doctrine uh, of Scripture, and the book of Romans is a doctrinal treatise. In fact, we might say as far as uh, this goes, to the place where we are, Romans 5, 12 to 25, that the apostle has written all of what has gone before in order to get to this part. It is not the climactic portion of the epistle, in my opinion. I think that doesn't come until the eighth chapter. But I will say that it is the beginning of the thickest doctrinal portion. And that will continue now pretty heavy, and you'll need to be thinking. Uh, you'll need to be thinking. You can't just be singing along here with uh, with Romans, because as we get through into this uh, thick portion of chapter 5, our thoughts will be challenged a little bit. So let's just read, and we'll uh, pick up uh, where we left off, kind of halfway through a verse. We're going to pick up sort of halfway through the 11th verse of the 5th chapter, and we're going to see here that it tells us, not only so, we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, or the reconciliation. That is to say, we have been reconciled to God. We have come into God's favor instead of God's anger. We are now in a place of favor with God, and the grace of God is now for us. And it's wonderful to be in the grace of God. We talked about that a little bit. It's a delightful thing to be able to have an introduction to the grace of God in order that we might actually use the grace of God. And so now we see that uh, we're in the good of the atonement, or restoration, as one has put it, restoration to God's favor. Now, that being cleared, we now have a transition in the 12th verse, which tells us, Wherefore, now this wherefore is a transition into the way that we should be thinking about our salvation and about what it is that we have and about how it is that it works. And that's the thing I want to make a a consistent point of. The salvation that God gives us actually works. It has to be logically persistent and consistent. God is reasonable, and he never becomes unreasonable, and he never contradicts himself. And part of never contradicting himself is being consistent throughout. And so when we find one thing about God, we'll never find him uh, compromising or contradicting himself. So if God is righteous, for example, he will always uh, be righteous, and we can never find him as unrighteous. And that's a very important thing uh, for us to realize about God, is that he'll make sense. And therefore, our faith in Christ must uh, make sense. It must be consistent. And that's how faith grows. It grows in consistency. It never becomes inconsistent. And when you find yourself inconsistent in your faith, or thinking improperly in a certain way, and you're corrected by the Scripture, you change your mind. And when you change your mind about something, that is what 
repentance is. That We call that repentance. That is what repentance is. And therefore, have that correct uh, point of view. And then remember that a life is not only, we are not only introduced to the grace of God by faith, but in the way that we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we walk in him, we also walk by grace through faith. And any other way to walk, any other way to walk is sin. That which does not proceed from faith is sin. And it's important that we also realize that. So now let's look at what we're coming to here. Let's start getting into the thick of things. Let's start looking at the 12th verse, because we're introduced here to some monumental uh, thoughts, and uh, they're better had than talked about. So let's just have these thoughts. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, and here's a parenthetical remark, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. I just want to ponder for a minute these three verses and give some considerable thought to them. And I'll tell you, they're not well understood. In fact, Romans chapter 5 here toward the end is a very poorly understood portion of Scripture. You'll have a hard time finding it explained in the way that it's actually written. And if we're not careful, we'll wander down certain avenues that may be correct but aren't to the point. They're not exactly to the point where we need to be. So look here first now in the 12th verse. It says, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And then, so, death passed through every man, and came from one to another, passed upon all men, and in that all, for all, sinned. So now here's how we can see that death passed upon every man, two ways. One, all sin, and so we see the nature of the thing passed into the nature of the man. Sin came into the world by one man, Adam, and death came into the world by one man, Adam, by sin. In the day that thou eatest of it, God said to Adam, dying thou shalt die. And so death comes into the world through sin, and the sinning comes into the world that way. And so all men sin, and all men finally die, and then they stop sinning. So sin and death are that inextricably linked. We know that death is at work and that we're going to die because we are sinning. All have sinned. Now we have this parenthetical remark, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now that's an interesting statement, and it's important to notice and important to take apart and to think about for a minute. We know what the word imputed means. Imputed means taken into account or put to one's account. It says, until the law was in the world, there was a certain condition. Now, the law came into the world 
through Moses, in the time of Moses. But it says, until the law, sin was in the world. So the law was not till Moses, but sin was in the world from Adam to Moses. Therefore, we have verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That is to say, sin was in the world from the time of Adam to Moses, but because there was no law, sin wasn't imputed. That is to say, sin wasn't specifically applied to this person and well-defined. It wasn't. And the Scripture says here it wasn't put to anyone's account. But on the other hand, death still happened. Death still happened. And so what this is outlining is really the federal headship and the obvious federal uh, headship of Adam, how it is that really all are in Adam. Because it tells us in the Scripture, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That is, Adam is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who's to come. And how is he a picture? Well, he's a picture this way. Through him came sin. Everybody was sinning from the time of Adam to Moses, up to Moses, and we're going to draw a line in the sand here, at Moses, when the law came into the world. Before Moses, there was no law. Yet until the law, sin was in the world. How do we know? Well, sin is that only thing that leads to death, and death reigned from Adam to Moses. Adam died. In fact, it's a litany. As you read the scripture, it's a litany. Uh, such and such begat such and such, li lived so many years, and he died. One of the things you can't miss when reading the book of Genesis and reading the generations of Adam is that death reigned through Adam. Even it reigned, even death reigned over them, and that's what it says, over them that had not sinned, like Adam sinned. So here's a descendant of Adam. We could take his son, Seth. Seth was born. Seth did not sin like Adam sinned. He didn't have a commandment not to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or in the day that he took of it, dying he would die. He didn't sin like that. Nevertheless, he still died. And, of course, he was a sinner. He was a sinner. He failed to do that which he knew to do, and he did that thing which he knew not to do. Whatever it was, whatever he thought, he failed to do some of the things he thought he should do, and he failed to not do some of the things he knew not to do. And so he was a sinner even though he didn't sin like Adam did. That is to say, he's incorporated into Adam. He is in Adam. Adam's sin was visited upon him. He demonstrated it while he lived, and he suffered the same consequence as Adam did in that he died just as was pronounced to Adam. So what is the Scripture setting up here? The Scripture is pointing out that there is a federation in someone, and that these sinners were federated into Adam, who is a figure of the one who is to come. So Adam not only is the progenitor of the human race, but Adam 
also is the federal head of the human race. And from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, where there was not even a law in the world, where God had not spoken a law and said, this, all these other things are wrong, even though the law was not there to impute the sin to everyone's account, according to what they did, and show the exact punishment, yet still they sinned, they still behaved in the way that Adam did, and so we say they are federated in him. They are in the problem that he created, and there was no escaping. They were born in Adam. Now, maybe you want to call this original sin, but I don't think so. The original sin was Adam's sin, and the Scripture absolutely says these people did not commit that sin. Nevertheless, they were in it. So the fact is we have the nature of sin, and the punishment do it is visited upon us. We are in him. We're in Adam, and you can't get out. It's just the way it is. Now, you can't say that's not fair because you do sin. In fact, it isn't that you just get Adam's punishment. You get your own punishment. You have the nature of Adam in you, and you demonstrate it by your behavior, and you're federated in his punishment. Oh, my, what a problem. But what also grace there is, because remember, it tells us in verse 14, He's a figure of the one who's to come. We're going to look at that. We're in Romans, the fifth chapter. We've just looked at the federal headship of Adam, and it's undeniable we're in him. We're stuck with the human nature that we inherited from him, and that nature is to sin. And yet we find here that even though the Bible tells us even though we didn't sin like Adam, and even though those before the law didn't sin like Adam, yet still death reigned over them. That is to say, if we look at the people from Adam to Moses, we know that the entire human race was just in Adam. It was just in Adam, and death reigned over them all. And there was a single head of the human race, which is Adam, And they were all in him, and they all suffered his death. And he's a picture of one who's to come. And you might say, well, how is Adam a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ when isn't he the fountainhead of the problem? And isn't the Lord Jesus Christ the fountainhead of blessing? Well, he is. And uh, when you think that he is the fountainhead of blessing, well, why don't you come to him? So we don't know this stuff very well. And here it is for every believer to understand, laid out, a little bit complicated, but uh, not really, in reverse comparative form. And so when we read that uh, Adam is a figure of him to come, we need to remember that we can apply the uh, type of Adam or the picture of Adam, we can apply it exactly as it is, or we can supply it precisely the opposite as it is. And so here we have this wonderful verse of Scripture, one of my favorites, Romans 5.15, where we have the beautiful construction of this simple sentence, but in the English language, uh, it's excellent. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Now, isn't that something? But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. That is to say, exactly as the offense worked, 
the free gift worked opposite. Exactly as the offense worked, the free gift works opposite. Now, how did the offense work? Well, the offense worked that one man sinned, and death came by sin. Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and it was visited on every single person that was in that guy. And in that guy, we might say, in him genetically or in his loins, as the Scripture says, all who were born in him. Everybody that was born in the line of Adam, the sin was visited upon him, and death by sin. And that's just how the free gift works, opposite. So as the offense is, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if the offense of one, or through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. So we have sin and death, and in place of sin we have grace and life. Just like sin came into the world through Adam and death by sin, so grace came into the world by Jesus Christ and life by Jesus Christ. And then the law was added. And what did the law do? Well, the law made sin exceeding sinful, and sin abounded by the law as it defined more and more things to be sin, and sin abounded. And so now the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God following uh, grace by Christ comes in, and this word comes to us, and what happens through it? Well, sin came into the world and then abounded by the law, so grace came into the world, and grace superabounds by the word of God to us after Christ ascended into heaven. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift in every way. Just as the bad news got worse through the law, the good news got better by the word of God coming through the apostle. And the word of God here, now God speaking again. Superabounding grace is what we find. So it tells us the grace of God and God's gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. Not just come, but abounded. Now, we need to drill down a little bit further on that. And the apostle does in this continuation of his statement in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 5. Now, if you're just getting little snippets of this, I hope you get a little something for your souls, and you get a little food for thought. But this whole thing together needs to be enjoyed. Now, not only do we enjoy the Scriptures, but the reason we enjoy the Scriptures is because of the wonderful things it tells us that God has done for us. Verse 16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Now, this is an exact opposite application by analogy. Not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For judgment was by one to condemnation. The judgment was by one to condemnation. Of course, here in the day that thou eatest it, you will surely die. And then that just went to everybody, death. So that's how the judgment worked. Not as it was by one that sinned, so is the free gift of many offenses unto justification. Now here we have a little bit different analogy. Here we have one offense that visited all kinds of sin and death on all of us. So here is a free gift through the righteousness of one, many offenses. The free gift overcomes many offenses unto justification. So the sin of one led to many sins and to death. The righteousness of one 
leads to great grace over many sins unto life. 4, verse 17, If by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now what a wonderful statement. It says here's one who reigned and lost it by sinning and brought death. Here's another one who substituted himself, who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be visited upon us, and we get to reign in life by him. What a wonderful thing. Here's one who died. Here's another one who will reign. Here's one who brought us into the sin. Here's one who brought us out never to be touched by sin again. Now we have verse 18, and we have a little bit of a regurgitation. That is to say, we have a little bit of a rethink here. But that's to supply us with our meditation. Therefore, verse 18, Romans 5, As by the offense of one judgment came on all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one upon all men unto justification of life. Now, Adam's sin, thoroughly studied, and the federation of us and Adam, the understanding that by nature we are sinners, not that we just commit sins, but that we have sin, and that sin is the problem, and by understanding how it is that we came to sin, that is to say, by birth. We came to sin by birth. We came into sin by being born in Adam, so it's elementary and logical and reasonable that we come to life by birth. That is to say, the new birth, or the birth from above. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, marvel not, don't be surprised that I say unto you, you must be born again. Are you a great, the great teacher in Israel, and you don't know this thing? This has never been hidden. This has never been hidden. It was never hidden that the Savior would save us from Adam's sin and bring us into life. Now, there are many things that were hidden, many important things that were hidden. But this isn't one of them. This is open and obvious. Therefore, as by the offense of one, all men came into condemnation, so by the righteousness of one, all men come into justification of life. Now, it says all men. That is whosoever. On the principle that he establishes, which is not a law principle, but which is the principle of grace through faith. Come into faith, come into him, come into life. He that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Scripture says in John chapter 5, has passed through death into life. This is the truth of the Scriptures. This is what woke up Martin Luther. This is why you can't read the book of Romans and stay religious. This is why you can't join some religion after you read the book of Romans. You read the book of Romans, you understand it, and you go, I have life, my goodness, grace through faith, what a wonderful thing. Now it goes on. It goes on. This good news just seems to go on and on. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man shall many be made righteous. Now, here it is. Just like Adam who sinned, so is it like the Lord Jesus Christ, only opposite. Adam sinned, he didn't. The righteousness of one. That is to say, the substitutionary act of Christ on the cross. Just like Adam's disobedience in eating that forbidden fruit, so Christ's 
death on the cross works the same way in that Adam brought sin on the whole race. Christ brought righteousness to whosoever believes in him. That's how it makes sense. So how does this make sense? It makes so much sense. That is why those who are wicked suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because this just makes sense. It just makes sense. And it makes so much sense, in fact, that we realize the great power that is in Christ. We'll come back here now. There is power in the blood of Christ, and it's the power to bring you out of sin and into life. And as the Scripture says, as by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, many were made sinners, so the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. Now, I didn't do Adam's sin, and I came into the bad of it without doing anything. I came into the bad of Adam not having done a thing. I came into this world, I'm sure, kicking and screaming, crying, out of my mother's womb, just like you. And I didn't do anything, but I came into the bad of Adam's sin, just like that, just by birth, by mere birth. And so I came into the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ by not doing anything, simply by believing in his death in my behalf. And that is the grace of God, friends, and nothing else is the grace of God. It was easy for me. I was born into life. It was easy for me to become a sinner. I was born in kicking and screaming, crying through the sadness and pain of my birth and my mother's pain. And I was born again through the pain of my Lord Jesus Christ, but I didn't come in kicking, screaming, and crying. I came in laughing, rejoicing, and happy that I passed through death into life. Just as it was through Adam, so it is opposite in Christ. And that is God's plan of salvation, and nothing else is God's plan of salvation, and everything else gives men boasting, and this gives glory to God. And don't tell me that it's too easy, because it isn't too easy. It's just easy enough. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all I can do. I don't have wherewithal to do anything else. And it wasn't easy for my Savior. Now, we have finally, in here in Romans chapter 5, finally in Romans 5, we have these last two verses, which is to say, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, we have to talk about the law a little bit. And in order to talk about the law a little bit, that means we have to go back up where it's first referenced in the 13th verse, where it tells us, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, that doesn't mean that after the law, there wasn't sin in the world. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that until the law, that is before the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. And that is to say this. Sin doesn't get put to your account except that there's a law about it. So if you're driving too fast in your car by your own judgment, just by your own judgment, you're just driving along and you go, according to me, I'm driving too fast. Well, that's not going to be put to your account without a law. Uh, you still think you're driving too fast, and so you still have the knowledge that you're driving too fast and that you're an offender. And therefore, you are an offender. 
by even your own definition of an offender. I'm driving too fast. However, until there's a law that says you cannot drive faster than 35 miles an hour when you're here, it's not going to be put to your account. But as soon as the law comes in and says 35 miles an hour, and now you say you were driving too fast, you go, well, how f- I know I'm driving too fast. How fast am I driving? You're driving 90 miles an hour. Now the law comes in and will put to your account that you are going 55 miles over the speed limit. In fact, the law may tell you that you're speeding at 45 when you do not think you're driving too fast anymore. That is to say, the law superabounds your offense. The law defines your offense. And maybe you didn't even think you needed to signal when you turned, and that wasn't against the law that was on your heart, but now the law says you must signal when you turn, and when you don't turn, that's another violation. And all of a sudden, the law is entering in, and your offenses are now abounding. Now, instead of having one or two offenses, you've got hundreds of them, and they're put to your account just like that. But until there's a law, your offenses are offenses still, but they're not put to your account. Now the law comes in and puts it to your account. So the law entered, and this is what God did. Why did God bring in the law? God did not bring in the law to save anybody. He never intended that the law would justify anybody. In fact, the law came in that the offense might abound. God brought the law in to make people realize their condemnation. The law came in that offense might be quite well known and abounding. That's what it says. The law entered that the offense might abound. It might be defined in detail. The law came in and sins were defined all over the place. And all of a sudden, the knowledge of sin substantially enhanced. Now, that doesn't save anybody. To enhance the knowledge of your condemnation does not save you. It does not save the sorry prisoner from the sentence of death when he begins to realize exactly how and where it's going to happen and why. That doesn't help him any. It's like people telling me that a person repents because they know they have sinned. That doesn't change anybody's mind. The knowledge of sin doesn't change your mind. It informs your mind. It informs your mind. And that's what the law did. The law came in and informed and even defined offenses in such a way that after you read them and it says you shall not do this, maybe it didn't bother you a bit until you found out you're not supposed to. And now you know you're not supposed to, and all of a sudden you're liable for all kinds more offenses. You that read the law, don't you see what the law says? The law says you're an offender. Now, that's the bad news, first half of the verse of verse 20. Why does he tell us the bad news? Because not as the offense so also is the justification, because it's the opposite, my friend. Here's the good news. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounds. Or we could put it this way. Where sin abounded, grace superabounds, or abounds over and above. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Here the law got its entrance, or the law came in alongside the sinner and whispered more sins to him. In fact, the law came in and piled on on the sinners. In football, I don't think they call the penalty anymore, but in football there used to be a piling on penalty. And that is when a man is down and you just jump on the pile, you're piling on, that's a penalty. That's what the law did. Here were sinners already sinning and dying, and the law came in and piled on the sin. Here you go. 
heaped a bunch of sins on. So the law came alongside in order that the offense would abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounds, or superabounds, superabounds. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said the one that is forgiven much loves much. Now, does that mean that we shall sin and continue in sin, that grace may abound, God forbid. And that's Romans 6, by the way, if you're starting to think that way. We'll talk about that in Romans 6. We're not going to talk about that right now. That's for later. That's a question that arises in Romans 6. But where sin abounded, exactly where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. We talk about the condemned man. He's going to death. I read a statistic. I don't know if it's true. I suppose it is. Men who are executed, fully two-thirds to three-quarters of them, receive Christ as their Savior. That's right. Now, you tell me who's in good shape. Heaven's going to be filled with murderers and liars and cheats and every other kind of sin. Absolutely. Christ came to save sinners of whom the Apostle Paul is the prototype. And here's a sinner who knows that where sin abounded, grace superabounds. Now, that means not only does grace abound in that very same place where you sin, and that is where you need grace. Not only does grace flourish where you sin, but it superabounds, which is to say grace, it is grace that is greater than all your sin. And that is the truth of Romans 5 and verse 20. Now we have verse 21. That where sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, friend of mine, let me tell you that there is no such thing, there is no such thing as sin that can rule beyond the reach of grace. There is no such thing. Now, some people say, and they're taught this, this is why they say it, some people say, well, what about falling from grace? What if I fall from grace? Well, if you don't take advantage inside the Christian life of the grace of God, then you have rejected grace, and therefore you won't uh, accept God's uh, grace. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you lose God's grace. Certainly not. Certainly not. But let me say this. Grace is available for all people at all times, in all conditions. And grace desires, as it were, if we could personify grace, grace desires to superabound beyond your sin, beyond your sin. And I had a friend talk to me this one time when I was quite young. I was very discouraged about myself and the way I am and the way I was. And the way that I still am, I was discouraged about the person that is me. And though I was discouraged and was, in fact, discouraged about a particular area of my life where I sinned, he said, you know, you really need to be thankful to God, not for your sin, but that by understanding your own failure as a sinner, that you have come into the understanding of the grace of God, and you need to just look now for the grace of God. It was good advice then. To me, it's good advice now for you. I know that as we study the Scriptures, as we look at the Word of God, I know what happens. 
The Bible teaches us what happens when we begin to talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, his death for your sin, his ascension into heaven, his coming back again. The Bible teaches us what we think about because the Holy Ghost is a person. He's real. And the Holy Ghost comes alongside you and me as we talk about these things, and he begins to bring conviction into our life about sin. He comes in and he brings conviction about sin. And even though we don't necessarily talk about it, he does do that work, and we begin to wonder, well, what about me? I know that's good for him or that one, but they don't know what a wretched sinner I am. Well, God knows what a wretched sinner you are, and the grace of God comes to you that way. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ said this to the disciples before he left. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you. It's good for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. We're reading in John 16 now. And when he has come, he will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because they don't believe on me. And do you realize that the world is only convicted of sin when they realize that they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not about the deeds that we do. It is about the faith that we reject. This is the great convicting work that the Holy Spirit does. He convicts men of sin because they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Times of ignorance God winked at. Now he commands all men everywhere to change their mind and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you don't see me anymore. How is it that people are convicted about righteousness? It's because Jesus Christ has come and left. He died for our sins and he left. And now there is a conviction of righteousness because he's done the work necessary. He's died for our sins, and we don't see him anymore, and he's ascended. That is to say, he rose again from the dead, and he ascended up to heaven, and that is what brings the understanding of righteousness. And finally, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And where was the prince of this world judged? Well, Colossians teaches us that Jesus Christ made an open show in the heavenly places of his triumph over the prince of this world, he was judged at the cross as a has-been and a loser. The prince of this world is judged. And he says, I have many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. And what is that truth? Well, that truth is the scriptures of truth, including Romans chapter 5, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through Jesus Christ unto eternal life. My friend, that is the good news. Doctrinally laid out, you can find the solution to your problem in the problem, just like sin came upon you without your doing, and you now are subject to that sin, so the grace of God will come to you without your doing. The grace of God will come to you by faith, alone in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. You know, I'm reminded of the Philippian jailer who came to a sudden understanding about the punishment and penalty due his sins as he was about to kill himself. He was in such despair 
as he is a jailer responsible for all the lives of uh, those under his care, and a great earthquake hit, and all the cells popped open through the agency of the earthquake, and he was about to kill himself, and the apostle Paul told him what a great miracle had happened. He said, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And when he realized that there was grace for him, that he had a moment of grace, and that somehow everybody was still there, fell on his knees to the apostle, and he said, Lords, that's what he called him, and called them Lord in his ignorance. He said, Lords, what must I do to be saved? And I'll tell you, that fellow needed a straight answer, he needed a simple answer, and he needed a complete answer. And here's what he was told, and this is all that he was told. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. 